Welcome to Gears Action Growth, shifting business culture one conversation at a time. In part two, we continue our conversation about non-binary culture and explore how it's demonstrated in organizational culture and in our leadership. We also discuss how we can take non-binary and inclusive practices beyond gender. Welcome back, Ian. How are you today? I'm going well, thanks. It's a beautiful uh, late autumn day in central oh, Victoria. I know. And you're um, just tell people where you are because you're in such a beautiful place in Victoria. And, and remember, people are all over the world listening. So, But it is such a beautiful place where you are. I'm in uh, the land of the Jajawarung people of the Kulin Nation. And um, it's central Victoria um, on the Campaspe River in a little town called Kyneton. Um, it was um, an important um, staging post on the way to the goldfields of Bendigo uh, and it's lovely we have a lot of deciduous trees planted here and they're all cascading to the ground in this beautiful sunny autumn oh, day it's not gorgeous just gorgeous well we're here to um, continue the conversation we had um, a while ago I think it was a couple of weeks ago now um, but it was such a r- interesting conversation on can organizations be non-binary and we were talking a lot about really what gender pluralism means what gender identity means what it means to be non-binary and and some of the um, sort of issues and trends we're seeing around that and some of the shifts we're seeing around that but to but today in part two we wanted to talk about really our experience at um, understanding whether organizations can really shift their cultures and ways of ways of really being and doing in into a non-binary expression or form of that so we want to we want to definitely talk about um, our organizational experience here and uh, particularly for listeners, if you haven't caught up with part one, it might be a good idea to go back to part one, and then this conversation will make more sense, hopefully, in the, in the context of that. So how does that sound, Ian? Does that sound okay? Yeah. What do you think? Do you think uh, organisations can be non-binary? What's your take on that, having thought about it over the last few days? You know what? I think that they can. I think a lot of organisations are not uh, there yet, but I but I'm I want to put my growth mindset on and say say they are not there yet, but it's definitely part of um, something that they can they can aspire to. And I think we have to define what we mean by an organisation or culture that's perhaps non-binary by looking at perhaps what organisational cultures are today, and then thinking about what the future state is. And when I think about that, there's um, probably where my experience comes from is the work that I did in my PhD because I actually asked people, I asked men and women, particularly in uh, senior leader positions uh, and management positions, how they described their organisation as if it was a person. So the question I asked them was, if your organisation was a person, how would you describe them? And then I gave them a list of gender traits. And so what I was able... What were the gender traits? So, so for example, um, nurturance, um, uh, able to uh, understand other people's feelings, empathy, uh, more stereotypically associated with uh, women because they are they link to femininity, um, whereas uh, independence, assertiveness, competitiveness. Uh, 
tend to describe a gender identity that is masculine and is stereotypically associated with men, but it doesn't necessarily mean that men can't be feminine and that women can't be masculine because men and women uh, can be, of course, masculine and feminine. But in the gender, in the sex role, um, gender literature, there are certain traits that have been identified as either being masculine or feminine. And then there are other dimensions to that within masculinity and within femininity, because we can um, we can think of and, and we can define traits that are more positive and or negative or more or more, I guess, um, enhancing uh, to others. Um, and in particular, you know, we talked last time about the drive that that each of those psychological um, identities have in relation to um, whether, for example, if, if we're thinking about masculinity as being independent and competitive and individualistic, the drive or the evolutionary drive is for masculinity to be then more like femininity in terms of accepting others' feelings, being more empathic and accepting um, the individual as being part of a connected web or part of connection. So, and, and in the opposite way, we can think about femininity and the evolutionary drive there as being going from femininity to being more like some of the traits that we describe as masculine. So being, being when you start in femininity, um, when you are expressing pure femininity, you, you don't have an identity that's separate to others. You, you, are, you see your identity as absolutely connected. So the drive to masculinity, the evolutionary drive would be to adopt more independence, adopt more um, perhaps um, assertiveness so that you can assert yourself as an individual while also feeling connected. So the the goal is balance. And when I think about organisational cultures, that's kind of the goal that I think about um, where organisations can go to to create culture that, that is less biased towards one gender or the other. And in fact, when I did my PhD many moons ago, I found that women in particular were particularly affected that their career choices, their career success was particularly affected by the lack of femininity or, or particularly nurturance and connection and empathy that they saw in their organizational cultures. So they were absolutely comfortable with masculinity as the men were, but they were particularly affected by the lack of femininity in that culture, by the mm. lack of connection, by the lack of nurturance, by the lack of um, those um, acknowledgements of emotions that come into it being empathic and compassionate. I'm reflecting on what you've just said in the light of our seismic federal election that's just occurred where um, a highly masculinist, uh, allegedly conservative government has been kicked out. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Ian. I was... I was listening to the um, no, I didn't watch the election on uh, in the on the evening, but the day after, I was listening to the commentary, and particularly, I was listening to the new parliamentarians talking about, including the new prime minister, talking about how they wanted to do p politics and leadership differently. Many of them mentioned the word heart. Did you notice uh -huh, that? Absolutely. I mean, a we have a whole uh, raft of amazing women coming in to step up 
and take leadership roles that the previous government, which was so skewed towards uh, domination and uh, gender wars by men, uh, step up and say, well, you've ignored us, so here we are. Um, the other thing is our new prime minister, the first thing he did was to uh, declare that we will finally be acknowledging First Nations peoples in our constitution, or at least having a moving towards that, by ratifying the uh, Uluru Treaty from the Heart, which is all about heart, um, and it's about First Nations peoples actually trying to lead the rest of us towards embracing heart as part of our governance. Um, so I felt incredibly relieved. I'm still decompressing, um, but it's seen. It's funny because you did your research. Was it? It was like early 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I know. Twenty years ago. I know. I hate to say that because so was mine. <laughs> but um, it's funny because I was my mine was on environmental adult education and yours was on gender issues within organizations and here we are 20 years later both have collided in this election really so true ian see we were before our time we were always ahead of our time weren't we? <laughs> but having said that it 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 makes me hopeful for change mm. because in the last particularly the last three or four years and when i when i also look at other countries, in particular, I'm thinking about America as well and the, and the political... I'm not an expert on the political system in America, but just some of the things that have happened in the last three to four years there as well as in our own country have been so, um, in some ways, really demoralising for me. Yeah. I, you know, I've just been so um, distraught. And I just felt like it was the future that I hoped for was starting, you know, on, on Sunday. Yeah, but I haven't had the energy to run around the street with streamers. It's 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 sort of um, there's just an extensive exhaustion, actually. Exactly. Well, it, it's and, and you know, obviously, the, it's a good start, but it's also um, you know, there's a lot lot of change to occur and a lot of action. You know, we want to see some action behind those words, but it's a great place to start. Intention is always a great place to start, whereas we haven't seen that intention for a while. So what do you think about the role of uh, mainstream media? And by mainstream media, I, I'm basically flagging the Murdoch media empire, which is so dominant in Australia, as in the US. But portrayals of organisational well-being and gender are very skewed towards the very masculinist warrior type that you've mentioned, right? Do you agree? They are. They are. They, and um, I think that we've we've seen a lot of um, research, particularly after COVID, um, really showing that we need to amplify well-being in the organi in organisations. But we we are still um, thinking about well-being from a perspective of the individual. So you know, in terms of um, you know, individual staff and what their needs are. Whereas if we think of, a, of an organisation that is more connected or a culture that's more connected, it's about the well-being of the, the of all of the mm. um, members of that, of that culture, which also includes doing work on social inclusion and social justice around the culture. So, and 
I, I can't, you know, there, there's some really great um, leaders in that, um, that I'm working with, particularly public sector organisations that are looking to create social justice charters and looking to really embed that in their cultures, but they are f few. And particularly in what we see in the private sector um, is that we see some organisations that have signed up to, um, you know, organisations like B Corp, where sustainability and social justice are really part of their strategy and they're part of the way in which they want to create a culture that has well-being at its heart. Um, mm. But but not all organisations. That's not the template in a way. So so we still have a way to go. But but I can see that there are some organisations that are pointing in the right directions. Absolutely. You shared with me um, a story that I found very moving um, about your act of allyship. Is that a word? You became an ally to someone in your organisation just by acknowledging that you'd participated in a. A community event that actually they belong to as part of that community um, but the organizational setting hadn't necessarily embraced them in that way before can you talk to me a bit more about what happened yeah uh, and I haven't told this story before but it's something that particularly when I think back to my leadership it's something that really it just make it just makes me so proud of um, the decision I made. You know, I think sometimes we have to pat ourselves on the back, actually, because it was... Uh, so I'll, I'll set it up for you. The, the context is that I was working in a, in a senior role. I had a, a team that um, I loved. This was one of the great greatest teams I ever led. And um, there was a, a member of the team who um, was um, gay. He was outwardly gay. He had been and in the organisation. Um, and this was an organisation that actually embraced... Um, uh, particularly um, LGBTI and Q, Q plus people, they um, they had a ally network actually. So, and a lot of senior leaders were part of the ally network. And in fact, this staff member was a very active member of that of the community um, that um, had allies as well as other members who identified um, in the, as as um, in that way in the um, staff pool. And so. So you would think that the organisation was, you know, leading in some of those ways. Uh, but but I, think, I think that saying you're an ally and then actually demonstrating your ally-ness, we can use that word, um, is different. And, and what happened was at the same time as I was a senior leader, I was, you know, I was very much in my performing um, career as well. I've always, you know, been open about being a performer as well as um, working in um, in leadership roles in organizational psychology and so I accepted a role in a major production um, uh, produced by P and starred in by Peter Mack. Hi listeners just a little point to say that it's actually Paul Mack I got it wrong on the day so apologies when you hear me say Peter Mack in this recording it's actually Paul Mack. And Peter Mack is an absolute um, phenomena in um, the United States in particular, in the queer community. And he's, he has a drag queen uh, show uh, that is often very disruptive and very um, futuristic in terms of his um, advocacy for um, the queer community. And he 
that that show was actually at the uh, Forum Theatre in Melbourne, a huge theatre, thousands of people attending. And um, I auditioned for one part of the show and actually got in the show. And the part of the show that I actually got into was the burlesque number. Mm. And so I was actually up on stage with less clothes than I've ever been um, up on stage with. So for me, it was a bit uh, of a challenge, but I loved it. It was an amazing production. It was actually a production that went for 24 hours because he uh, Paul Mack went through um, each decade of music. Uh, and it wow. was an incredible show. And so people who got a ticket uh, came to the theatre uh, over four nights and saw uh, something like 24 hours of performance. So incredible. But my, my dilemma, in a way, was whether I share that I was in this show with people at work. And I actually didn't share that I was in this show with some of my leaders because I wasn't, I didn't trust that they would um, accept it in a light that, that I hoped they, I just felt they, they would be judgmental. But I did share it with my team because uh, in the end, I, because I, we had such a, open trusting um relationship or and i i just felt like i couldn't not share it with my team but anyway this member of my staff member uh, this staff member came to me afterwards after i'd shared that and he was almost in tears and he said he said you don't know how much it means to me that you are actually in this show hmm. and, and and i and and then he said you know, you, you're the first person that I've ever, um, you know, had a ma- I've never had a manager who was so embracing of my community and mm-hmm. who I am. Mm. And I, I hadn't even realised that my, um, you know, d- disclosure would have that effect. I, that was not, you know, I, I've always wanted to be an authentic leader and wanted to, to really demonstrate that as a value. And that's what I thought I was doing by sh- disclosing what I was doing. But I didn't realise it would have that effect because I thought that he he was, um, you know, in a culture that was already embracing and accepting of who he is. But there are degrees of that. Yeah. And it's one thing to fly a flag of any hue it's another thing to actually show that you actually participate in cultural activities or political activities that symbolically show that you understand it and that you embrace it and that you support it um and i i was interesting for me is that you actually made a decision to come out in your organization as a performer um and you know for lgbti folk every day of our lives, inevitably, there is a moment where we have to make a decision about whether to come out or not. Um, and sometimes the decision, it's just the situation is either so potentially toxic or hostile or indifferent or whatever that we just can't be bothered doing it. Other times, it's very, very important to make a stand. And it's sometimes even the most incidental moments of of coming out are the ones that are the most important because you present your whole self in a way that's completely um without any controversy or you're not looking for endorsement or acceptance you're just declaring who you are um and it's interesting while you've been talking i've been thinking about 
I mean, we're used to talking about non-binary in the context of gender, sexuality, um, gender roles, but I'm I'm also now thinking of we live in such a binary world, black or white. The notion of race is such a it's a it's a social confection in a way, because there are so many people born whose parents have any you know have come from any number of different places in the world with any number of different skin tones and slight differences to our external body shape uh and humans especially colonial societies have had a real struggle with that we you know we we're used to people that are non-binary in a in a in a so-called racial way being second-class citizens and certainly in this colonial country australia i mean the whole notion of uh wanting to document what percentage or proportion of indigenous heritage someone had i mean it's just sickening basically um but again i wonder how that plays out in a in a non-binary organization what are your thoughts about moving beyond gender per se and i think i think that you've made a really good point ian we have to move obviously beyond gender and when we're thinking about an inclusive culture as well and it starts from um in a way my story is a demonstration of of where you can start it starts from what are the what are we doing what are the practices how are we embracing difference and diversity and checking in on some of our biases because we do have biases we all have biases around because we we sort of um in some ways socialize to accept uh and and we're in a way we learn this very early on we accept we accept faces that are like our faces very early on um, and it's it's uh, part of the um, development um, but it doesn't mean that we have to be you know um, connected or locked into that bias we can actually check in on our biases around the, the types of types of people we see in our organization and we need to be pushing the envelope on diversity and acceptance of different different people from different countries as well as cultures and embracing that and I think at the moment what I see in organizations is some nods to that you know for example we might have bring food from your culture on harmony day and we might you know do something like that and they are nods but I but I think it's time that organizations from a strategic perspective embrace some of those larger goals that we are really struggling with as a planet and if organizations think that that's not their business then they have their head in the sand executive teams need to be senior leaders in organizations need to be thinking about how they respond to the 17 sustainability goals in um, uh, the, from the UN how they respond to those bigger issues of racial discrimination and inclusion and diversity how they respond to some of these issues of gender um, equity equity yeah. as well because these are i mean they there will be consequences based on also you know when we have talent shortages people will choose organizations that align to their values and absolutely we're seeing um, younger people uh, being much more um, vocal and voting with their feet around those kinds of things and and 
it's okay to say, I don't know where to start. Hmm. This is the thing. These are big issues. It's okay to say, I don't know where to start, but it's not okay to say, this is not our problem. We're hmm. an organisation and all we need to do is... Um, it is create value for our shareholders. That is actually not the world we live in anymore because your shareholders will demand this from you as well. It's and value yeah. comes from actually addressing some of these issues. I read a great quote recently, which is when the majority of people that enjoy special privileges just by, for example, the colour of their skin or their gender, when other people for example, with brown skin or different gender identities start to uh, share some of that power, the majority frame it as discrimination on their part, whereas in fact all they're doing is allowing other people to come to the table. And I wonder, um, it's interesting in organisational contexts, there's so always pushback, the pendulum swings from the right to the left around quotas for people and affirmative action and all of those systems that were put in place with the very best of intent to create a more level playing field and actually as you said put the make the rubber hit the road in terms of actions on the ground but i guess the pushback against some of that stuff is that it's allegedly token these are all you know it's the the white the white men of a certain age that have used to you know being in the old boys club but they're the ones that say the quota system is, you know, rubbish or it's uh, discriminatory in another way. What are your thoughts about how... I, I guess there must be some organisational systems, right, that actually embrace non-binary culture and actually um, systematise it in terms of its yeah. operations. Yes, there, there are. And, and we can... There are very, very practical strategies and processes that you can put in place Uh the first thing you've got to do, though, is really um, have an acknowledge that the system that got these senior leaders, and it's men and women, got those type of senior leaders into that chair, um, the system that got them there is actually a system that's biased towards the kind of people that are there already. And this is why it's difficult, because because people will always turn to a merit argument. They'll say, well, we got there I got there because I worked hard. I'm a woman. I got there because I worked yes. hard. But that doesn't mean that the system isn't biased towards other people from a particular background or, a, you know, it, it doesn't mean the system isn't biased towards people like like you. It, it, it means that that you are either a variation, <laughs> you know, or that this, that you've actually had an advantage that others haven't. But when we look at, when we look at systems, you can't use the individual as a measure it's you can't use anecdotes as a measure you mm. can't look at my life you can't look at your life you actually have to look at from a systemic perspective where are the gaps so for example i was having a actually a conversation with someone just the other night about the gender pay equity um uh, gap in his organization and he was saying that recently the organization um increased pay for just the women just the women in senior roles, and he was livid. And right? yeah, and, and what's right, your and point? I said, I said, so, so why did they do that? They were addressing a gap. He said, 
well, maybe, but, you know, who knows? Maybe there wasn't a gap. I said, well, obviously they were addressing a gap. Good for them, right? Yeah. But they haven't done the communication about why. And uh. this is because then they're forming resentment, right? And you don't want to do that. You have to form the communication around the... If you're going to address a gender gap, you need to tell people why you're doing that. And, and it's basically because you, what you're saying is that actually the system we had in place before wasn't quite fair, so now, mm. and, and you know what? It's not about merit. That means that women who are just as, mer- you know, have just as, as just as competent and are doing the same work as the men in that same band are not paid as much. That's not fair. So we're going to address that balance. And, and it may be the men in that band might uh, then come along and, and kind of be more accepting of that. So it does require... Uh, communication and change management around that you can't just because you you can't just say that we're addressing an imbalance to create fairness without actually dealing with the people that have been have have had an advantage due to that unfairness it's a very it's it creates a paradigm it needs a paradigm shift that they may not be willing to make unless you you bring them along on a journey. But there are definitely things we can do. And even quotas, you know, I think quotas that have been resisted because they end up being problematic because we end up talking about, um, uh, we end up just arguing about the meritocracy of that uh, system of quotas. And, uh, And again, it's because the why hasn't been explained. Otherwise, quotas make absolute sense. To give you an an an, um, an example of this, we um, when when I was I was actually working in an organisation where I was responsible for the diversity inclusion of my part of the business. I was running that program with my executive director, and what we did was we actually had quotas in place, not in terms of who gets the job, but quotas in place in terms of the people you interview. Because we recognised that women weren't even getting to the interview stage because of the biases in the system. Oh, wow. Okay. So we said, you must interview this percentage of women every time you apply. And and if you can't, you need to tell us why. So, you know, that was a system of, you know, obviously maybe there's exceptions but you need to tell us what those exceptions are. Maybe there's a job that where you had no women applying. And so, but if, that's not a that's not an excuse though, because why aren't you having women applying? How is the job description being, um, you know, how is the job being described to potential candidates? What are you doing to actually make sure that women have um, this in their in their sites? Yeah. Um, and so, because we did that, we ended up getting lots of change in that kind of downstream of you know, managers started to reach out to their networks that more in a more uh, more widely where women were perhaps um, not included in networks before and they worked on recruiters to work harder to get women candidates and they ended up perhaps interviewing women that maybe on paper didn't look as good as the men. Yeah. But 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 at least they were there. And then what we did was we saw that a lot of those women got through. Wow, excellent. Because they were interviewed. We weren't even getting them to the interview table. Well, um, the other binary that interests me now as an older man is um, the age binary, you know, young or old. Uh, was it the first wives clubs? You were you were uh, the babe, the district attorney or driving Miss Daisy. And um, <laughs> 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 I, 
I'm now in my late 50s and it's amazing. I've been investigating customer relationship management platforms for an organization I'm working with. Uh, and it's amazing how many photos that are on these commercial companies' websites are all of um, uh, babes and possibly one or two district attorneys. Uh, but the, yeah. the, 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 the semiotics of that is if you're aged over 40, um, you're probably, you know, you're invisible, right? Um, hey, I was just thinking, uh, it occurs to me that what, you're, what we may be heading towards is some sort of taxonomy or a classification system for what a non-binary organisation might be like. And the word that keeps coming to my mind is it has to be transformative. It actually has to be committed to internal transformation in such a way that creates real partnership based with people um, so it's not transactional and it certainly needs to find ways to actually uh, uh, ratify and codify the voices of diverse people not only in terms of recruitment right but also in terms of governance and decision making and um, absolutely what do you yes. think about that yeah I think that's good Ian I think <laughs> you know I like that taxonomy and I think that and and I would add so so because what you've got is the voices there so you've got or transformative be transformative include the voices of, of diverse people and make sure that they are included in every aspect of the governance and decision making and then it's action that's that would be the last thing I would add to that text mm. because it's 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 in what you do not just in what you say Right. So it must be seen to be actually doing things that align with its stated values and philosophy. Um, and I would, I, I guess, the fact that it is committed to diversity and social inclusion, it, it needs to be a public statement. And then there needs to be demonstrable, demonstrable outcomes about how that work is progressing. Uh, and maybe some, and it's interesting because you're talking about systems change, but your narrative, the story you shared at an individual level about the importance of that, you both need systemic population level change. You need to be able to demonstrate systems change, but you also need the personal stories to drive that and show yes. the importance of that at exactly. an individual level. That's right. And it's, it's, it's no different to any other uh, transformation or change that, you know, we work on you always need those personal stories but they are not that they are not what you measure in terms exactly make change that's exactly. the difference that's where people get confused exactly yeah all right so ian we might leave it there let's go and write the blog on this because i think we need to get the taxonomy yeah. out <laughs> absolutely so, <laughs> so thank you ian another great conversation with you i i would be really interested to hear from our listeners about your views about some of the things we've talked about as i said at the start of part one as we both said we are not experts in this field we we have some experience but we want to um we want to bring a collective understanding to this because i think we will evolve this idea as we go yeah let's i'd love to hear from people what are your thoughts about what a non-binary organization looking feel like